Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. My name is Yaron Peleg and my guest today is Professor Iran Kaplan, who is Goldman Professor of Israel Studies at San Francisco State University. And uh, I'd like to talk to Professor Kaplan today about his most recent book called Beyond Post-Zionism that was published uh, two years ago, 2015, by SUNY University Press. And um, what I'd like to do, Iran, perhaps, as to start the conversation, is for you to tell us a little bit about the book, which I understand it, as you put it in the book, in, in your book, in the uh, preface, is an alternative intellectual approach to Zionism, not a polemic, but a way to understand what you call the post-Zionist condition. One of the other things you're saying in your introduction is also that you would like your book uh, to present some kind of an argument that will explain the use or the place of ideology in Israel in an era of repeated emergency. This is one of the things you say in, in, in the introduction to your book, and, and perhaps you can say a bit about this. Well, first of all, let me start by thanking you for inviting me to participate in this uh, podcast. Indeed, I'm trying to make in this book an argument that post-Zionism was a period in Israeli history. We tended to think of post-Zionism as an intellectual movement, as an academic movement, as a critique of traditional Zionism. But what I attempted to do in the book is to broaden the scope and to understand the intellectual components of the post-Zionist critique as a reflection of deeper uh, changes or evolution of Israeli history. Uh, Most importantly, the move to a neoliberal or late capitalist um, era in Israeli history, and to examine the type of intellectual critique or um, revisiting of of the Israeli past as a reflection of those changes that Israel has undergone. And part of the argument that I'm uh, trying to put forward is that post-Zionism as an intellectual critique, which I see as a kind of an Israeli version of the broader postmodern turn in kind of Western or the developed world, introduced a type of post-political, and in some cases post uh, declared post-ideological position with regard to Israel and with regard to Zionism and with regard to the future of Israeli history in the region. And what I try to argue from a 21st century uh, position is that the type of optimism that was conveyed by post-Zionism or was reflected by post-Zionism was no longer relevant in the 21st century, and the sense of the end of history 
that informed so much of the writings of the late 1980s and the early 1990s is no longer shared by, I would argue, any element in Israeli society any longer. And that indeed, the 21st century, which symbolically started with the attacks of 9-11 globally, and in the case of Israel, more specifically, began with the Second Intifada and the uh, collapse of the Oslo process, ushered in an era of permanent emergency uh, globally that reflected itself with series of economic crises as well. In many ways, Israel was spared the economic kind of anxieties that have characterized the Western experience of our current century. But the constant state of emergency with regard to security, threat, terrorism, and the repeated, however small, wars between Israel and Gaza or Lebanon have contributed to a sense that any end of the conflict, which in many ways has defined Zionist history or the Zionist experience for a, over a century, is no longer at hand. So any talk of going beyond or ending the conflict would seem naive or irrelevant in our current condition. And therefore, the idea that Israel is a post-Zionist or a post-historical or a post-political state no longer seems relevant. And it is from this perspective that I wanted to examine the post-Zionist debates and the type of arguments that they put forward and in a way begin a conversation or to, to see how we can move both forward in our way we examine the past but in the way we can talk about political horizons with regard to the future. I'm interested in some of what you said about understanding the past. And later, I'm going to ask you also about how you see this play out in, in the present and in the future. But what I find very interesting in the book is that you approach these issues from unusual angles which in which of the chapters, I mean, in each of the chapters of the book, you, you do it really very differently from a literary, from a literary point of view, from an ideological point of view, from a, I would say, economic, uh, economic critical point of view. And um, perhaps you can say a little bit about these different approaches, because I think these constitute one of the most refreshing and innovative aspects of this book. What I try to do is I try to follow some of the key post-Zionist arguments of the 1980s and 1990s and explore them and in a way offer an alternative reading of the topics that they themselves have delved into. So, for example, one of the key arguments was put forward by Ella Shohat in her book on Israeli cinema, that the entire Zionist enterprise was an Orientalist uh, enterprise informed by a Western position vis-a-vis -vis the Orient, vis-a-vis -vis the East, and she did so by tracing the evolution of Orientalism on the Israeli screen and focusing mainly on the depiction of uh, Jewish Mizrahim on, in Israeli cinema and the way it reflected a certain Zionist 
ideology of subjugating the Oriental other or subject to the needs of a certain Ashkenazi or European Western elite. And uh, what I tried to do, for example, in the chapter that looks at Israeli cinema, was to focus on three cases of movies that examine the representation of Mizrahi characters or non-Ashkenazi characters on the Israeli screen and suggest that perhaps they reflect certain stereotypes or perceptions about the East by Westerners or by Europeans who came to the East. But that judging those films as a reflection of the deeper structures of Zionist ideology, namely the role of the state and the role of the economy in shaping the lives of Israeli, could, I believe, offer a more productive understanding of the way certain characters are reflected on the Israeli screen. And my my suggestion was also that the type of kind of trans-historical notion of Orientalism, which posits that in a way Zionism and Israeli culture has remained stagnant for over a century, is not useful because history itself has changed in quite a profound manner over uh, the past century. And as a result of those changes, also the representation of various subjects in Israeli culture has evolved and changed. And ultimately, this leads to my overall argument vis-a-vis various post-Zionist arguments or theories, is that by acknowledging change, by acknowledging historical forces, I think we can come to a more productive understanding of both the past, but also offering a way to look at the future from a political perspective. I try to apply the same with regard to Herzl or the entire discussion with Zionism's uh, founding fathers, where in the 1980s and 1990s, the dominant perception amongst intellectuals and academics was that they were, again, European white males who injected a certain Western ideology into the Orient, which led to the subjugation of the natives or the others in the jargon of the time. And my attempt in the book was by focusing on uh, Herzl's utopian novel, Art Neuland, was to capture the kind of revolutionary and deeply political aspects of this novel, which I think, however outdated they may be thematically, still offer a way to think about the future with a utopian horizon, with the notion that we as historical subjects have the ability, have the power to impact history and offer an alternative throughout the course of time. Similarly, I talked about the legacy of labor Zionism, which has been the subject of many critical studies that tended to show the type of social institutions and ultimately the state that labor Zionists created as an oppressive political tool aimed to sustain and support the interests of a select elite or hegemonic group. And my attempt in this chapter was again to recapture the revolutionary or political commitment of the early labor Zionist 
ideologues not only to reclaim the place in Zionist or Israeli history, but to see how we can employ similar tactics or similar views in our current century as a way to um, offer an alternative to what seems to be the political malaise that certainly has engulfed the Zionist or Israeli left over the past 20 years or so. There was also a chapter about which you dealt with Amos Oz. Mm -hmm. And um, if you can remind me some of the things that you say there that relate to this argument. Uh, with regard to Amos Oz and his memoir or autobiographical novel, A Tale of Love and Darkness, my attempt there to see was to show how deep the impact of identity politics that came to the forefront in the 1990s has been on the entire field of uh, Israeli culture, of Israeli arts, and Israeli society more broadly. And I took Amos Oz, certainly not a post-Zionist or post-modernist by any stretch of the imagination. And I wanted to focus on him because in many ways, for decades, he was a symbol of traditional Zionism. He captured a certain image in the Israeli collective consciousness, but even on the international scene. He came to be a symbol of the new Israeli, capturing many of the characteristics that we tend to associate with classical Zionism. And what I wanted to show that in his autobiographical novel, as he looks back on his own life, he in a way assumed the position of identity politics. He ultimately, what I tried to show, is he gave up on an attempt to create the story of him as a person, as a stand-in for a certain universal Israeli identity, and instead wrote a book that is told from the narrow perspective of the Ashkenazi experience in the diaspora of emigrating to Palestine and of creating a community. And it was also the position of a kind of a minor culture within the overall Israeli spectrum. It was a limited, small story that appealed to a certain readership that ultimately found the book as a source of nostalgia to a certain period where the Ashkenazim were the dominant force in Zionist and Israeli history. But in many ways, this was a defeated group that can only hold on to a certain glorious past and in a way no longer offers a vision looking forward to the future. Thank you. I, I um, would like to ask you about each of the particular chapters you mentioned, but before we go into this, I want to be slightly provocative and ask you, um, some, many of the things you said sound to me like apologetics, Zionist apologetics. What do you say to that? Certainly my intent was not to write a Zionist apologetic. It may come across because the post-Zionist literature was very critical of Zionism. But what I tried to do is to, to, in a way, two things. One is that post-Zionist critique, like many other postmodern critiques, 
in a way argued that they are post-ideological. This was a reaction to the legacies of the Second World War and the Cold War and the rise of certain totalitarian ideologies. And the notion that those ideologies, whether they were from the left or from the right, brought about so much destruction and so much suffering that the only remedy is to overcome those strict ideological structures and instead search for liberty and freedom as the only way to provide happiness uh, to us as citizens or members of our communities. And in a way, this was a declaration of the end of the great ideologies or the grand narratives of trying to find a solution to human problems by way of political ideologies. And what I try to argue against this perception is that it is in itself highly ideological, and the ideology that it serves or reflects is the ideology of the market, that behind the radical rhetoric of post-Zionism and postmodernism more broadly was in a way an acceptance and affirmation of the very logic of the market, where the state is always seen as the barrier, as the hindrance, as the enemy of the chaotic forces of the market, which in themselves promise liberty, freedom, and the end of oppression. So in judging post-Zionism as an ideology in itself, it is important then to enter into a debate what type of ideological framework, what type of ideological future serves best as a universal message for a group of people or for a community. And what you argued may sound as an apologetic of Zionism was an attempt to highlight a certain aspect of Zionist ideology. And that was the revolutionary aspect of Zionist ideology in its early days. The commitment to confront history and the forces of history and to undermine those forces in the name of creating a new political horizon. This does not, this was not meant to be an, an apology for various policies, various crimes, and various other aspects of Israeli history. It is an attempt to offer a new perspective or a new way forward. In a way, Frederick Jameson once suggested that it is easier for us today to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. We know what the end of the world might look like because Hollywood tells us what it is at any given moment. What it means to go beyond capitalism is something that we are unable to do in our political imagination or in our cultural or literary imagination. And in a way, my critique was an attempt to un uncover the deep commitment of the Pozanist critique to capitalism and the very logic of the market and to begin a process of thinking beyond its limits and restrictions. Thank you. But um, here is, in fact, I would say, if not 
then I'll come back and, and ask you this. If not apologetics, perhaps uh, you're some kind of a reactionary. The, uh, and the reason I'm saying this is because you emphasized the, uh, the, the, you, the, the newness, the innovation that is embedded in your critique. But I don't think there are any historians who doubt the innovative or the revolutionary aspects of Zionism. I don't think that's an issue at all. We have now, we are now very far away from the, more than 100 years from the beginning of Zionism. And uh, we, I think there is a consensus amongst almost anybody who is familiar with this history that its beginning was very revolutionary. But perhaps we can go back to this at the conclusion of our discussion. But what, what I was interested to hear more of is how you think that each of the arguments you make in each of the chapters are an articulation of, or an exposition, or an exposure, an expose of the hidden ideology, that of the market, behind post-Zionism. In the Orientalist chapter, in the one dedicated to Herzl's utopianism, in the one dedicated to labor Zionism and about Ashkenazi identity. This would be very interesting to see how you assign these kinds of manifestations of uh, the ideology of the market to each of these categories. The answer would be twofold. One is that identity politics emerge as the only political horizon, to my mind, in the post-Zionist condition or the time when there was a sense that Zionist or Israel history came to an end. And in some ways, I think it continues to inform uh, Israel and the Israeli, uh, the discourse in Israel until this uh, very day. And the argument is that identity politics is a politics that is only at the rhetorical level. It only plays out on the level of representation. It seeks the ability to represent, to give a voice, but it does not seek to alter the fundamental nature of our political existence, the deep structures that govern our social and cultural and political interactions. And as a historian who looks at culture, who looks at social questions, I try to uncover the way that identity politics plays into the very logic of the market forces that govern the overall Israeli experience and to show their limits. And their limits, in my mind, is that ultimately they offer no horizon of change. They offer a static view of history that we need to think of history in predetermined categories and that there is really no way to overcome those categories. And the ultimate horizon of identity politics and various other kind of post-Zionist critiques is the ultimate breakdown of society, the ultimate breakdown of culture, and the ultimate breakdown of the political order into smaller and smaller and smaller units who in the name of certain idea of tolerance no longer interact with one another and therefore in a way do not offer an ability to work as a collective towards a collective and universal 
future. Yeah, that's fine, but uh, this is a, uh, this is an astute critique of uh, identity politics. But in Israel, these politics were also manifested in the construction or in the creation of frameworks that try to do precisely this, which you accuse them, accuse them of not doing, such as political parties and uh, grassroots movements, such as the um, Mizrahi uh, alignment or Keshet HaMizrahi Tachadashah, as it was called in Hebrew, uh, that did try to, to use old-fashioned old politics, as you call it, to mobilize people and to change reality. I would ultimately argue that the majority of the critiques that were produced from the late 1980s until today, in fact, have one goal in mind, and that to expand the ability of people to have a voice and to represent their identity in the uh, public sphere. The notion of engaging with politics by way of breaking deep structures and thinking in new ways of organizing society, of creating new organizations that give real political, social, and economic power to individuals is ultimately not part of this critique I asked you about identity politics and the connection to Orientalism and uh, market, uh, market uh, criticism. I want to, if we're on the subject of identity, I wanted to perhaps mention your chapter about Oz and your claim that his, his attempt, what he attempted to do in the book is to enter the identity political debate in Israel by becoming a mouthpiece for the Ashkenazi sector uh, and it, as a way to play in this field. But Amos Oz is writing about, in that book, Love, uh, the, um, Love and Darkness, he is writing about the first years or the first decades before the establishment of Israel in 1948 and the decades afterwards, a time in which the Ashkenazi group was in fact the biggest group and the leading group in the country. So anyone who's telling the story of the country, certainly in the first 50 years of the 20th century and a few decades into the state after 48 is also by default, is telling the stories of Ashkenazi Israelis. There's no getting around that. So in what way do you think that he is trying to manipulate the identity political debate? I don't think he tried to manipulate anything. I think that the book is a product of its time and the position of Amos Oz within the Israeli public. In a way, my argument is that he has internalized the uh, changes that Israeli uh, society as a whole has undergone, and he operates from a certain position. And my argument would be over the following points. One of the key aspects of early Zionist ideology and early Zionist culture was the notion of the negation of the 
past or the negation of the diaspora, the notion that you reinvent a new Jewish identity or a new Jewish character in the uh, homeland. And this was certainly characteristic of some of the early works of Amos Oz. If you compare this work to another semi-autobiographical novella, A Hill of Evil Counsel, which in a way deals with the same period and the same formative years of the young Amos Oz, then there the notion of the negation of the diaspora is absolute and very dominant. Whereas in A Tale of Love of Darkness, much of the story is an exploration, almost an archaeological digging for the roots of Ashkenazi identity in Eastern Europe, and in a way, shifting the gaze from the attempt to create a new Jewish identity into understanding the meaning of Ashkenazi identity over the generations. So this would be, to me, a fundamental part of it. The other thing that struck me was the reaction of readers to the book and how it was popular among a very small relatively small and well-defined section of the Israeli public, Ashkenazim, who had a similar experience to that of Amos Oz. And in the reaction to the book, in the many letters that they wrote in reaction to the book, in conversations that they had in reaction to the book, spoke about the way it reflects a bygone era that will never return in Israeli history. So in this regard, I believe that the book plays into the very logic of identity politics. You have to wait because if we cut it, we can go back. That's okay. They'll cut it. They'll cut this. Part. He understands. He understands, but any noise he makes is going to be recorded. Therefore, we'll wait until he finishes. And then he goes into his room, and we continue, and they will splice it. Um, or, okay, I see, I see your point. We are continuing now. We're going back to the conversation. And um, so, uh, all right. So perhaps um, my next question to you, based on our conversation, is to say, okay, you're not an apologetic but uh, are you a reactionary? Am I a reactionary? I do not believe that I'm a reactionary. I don't believe that someone who comes from a position that our current political reality needs a fundamental change is reactionary in any way. I believe that a reactionary is either someone who wants to maintain the status quo or to return to some golden age. My attempt was not to show early Zionism as some kind of golden age. My attempt was to recapture a certain spirit, which I think is a universal condition of trying to look forward and to engage from this point of view. Uh, reactionary? I don't think so. With regard to my cultural tastes, a conservative? Maybe. All right. In, in this case, I'll ask you about uh, pessimism and optimism as a way to get into the end of our conversation. You mentioned in the beginning that what was missing for you and what struck you in these debates or in these critiques of Zionism 
in the post-Zionist era was some kind of a cessation or a lack of belief in the optimism which ideology can bring to life, to people, to a movement, to a group of people. So are you saying then that Israel today in the post-Zionist era is a pessimistic society? I think not only Israel. I think Western civilization as a whole has entered a deeply pessimistic uh, period. I was writing this book leading up to its publication in 2015 with a sense that there might be a window, a wedge for some kind of movement forward. And symbolically, in my mind, it was the events of the summer of 2011 and the social protests in Israel that hinted at a, an alternative path for uh, Israeli politics or for Israeli society. But what we have discovered, I think, over the past three or four years in the West more broadly, not only in Israel, is a turn to the other way. And let me elaborate a little about this point. What informed the post-Zionist critique in the 1990s was a sense of optimism, was a sense of the end of history, that the great conflicts, the great ideological conflict can come to an end, in the case of Israel, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and that the market offers, in a way, infinite possibilities for growth and movement forward. This was a kind of Clintonian Pax Americana that innovations and growth would trickle down ultimately and improve the welfare and well-being of everybody involved or touched by it. What we have seen is a turn in the perception of capitalism itself. This type of globalist or globalization capitalism that will march forward and eradicate all barriers and all borders and all differences and create a kind of universal happy village is no longer prevalent anywhere, I would argue, in the developed world. And we can look from the United States of Trump to China, to Russia, Japan, India, Turkey, Hungary, other countries in Eastern Europe. And I think that Netanyahu's ideology over the past few years is very much in line with those changes. It is a fusion of nationalism, of patriotism, with capitalism, of erecting new barriers, of saying no to the promise of international free trade and the free movement of goods and people across the world. And perhaps the most symbolic turn has been, and, and the one signaling this overall uh, trend was Brexit, when an advanced capitalist society said no to the trends of the past 30 or 40 years and said, no, we want to look inward and shut ourselves off from the world in the name of capitalism and the promise of capitalism. So pessimism, I think, yes, and plenty. But then again, we can look back at more dire times when history looked even more dangerous. For example, late 19th century Tsarist Russia did not offer a lot of hope or potential. The first half of the 20th century offered many, many dangerous moments, yet there were those who were willing 
to confront those times and think beyond the immediate present and offer a certain utopian horizon. So if Herzl was able in under the anti-Semitic rule of Luger in Vienna to imagine a future where technology allows us as human beings to rethink the way we interact socially, then maybe today with our advanced technology, we may be able to harness it, not just to exchange emojis and pictures, but to rethink our political horizon as well. Thank you. Well, I think this is a fine summary of the spirit of the book. And I think I'll uh, take this moment to end our conversation in which I believed you gave a very good and thorough rendition of the major things you tried to do in your book, which I enjoyed very much reading. And um, I want to thank you again for uh, talking to us and um, wish you uh, luck. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much.